So I really want to get people thinking about um, this question that, that I always try to ask every once in a while, sort of like um, as the big theme question of, of New Masculinities Group is, who would you be if there had never been anyone in your life to tell you who you ought to be? And it's hard to imagine, but I really want people to, to think about that. Um, and how close are we to being that person? And what is in the way? What are the obstacles to being that person? Hi, and welcome back to The Plot, a podcast on writing and how our words and stories are shaping the world. I'm Sean Douglas. I'm an arts journalist, podcaster, and teacher. And one thing I've been trying to do during the pandemic is catch up with old friends. I've been reaching out to people I haven't spoken to in years, in some cases, many years. And one of those is my guest today, Adam Siegel, who is a close friend of mine throughout childhood and my teenage years, but with whom I haven't been in touch with as much as an adult. We're still in each other's social media circles, so I've known some of the things he's been involved with. And one was so interesting, I thought it'd make a great subject for a podcast episode. I'm excited to have him here, and I learned a lot from our discussion, so I hope you do too. Adam is active with social justice work in Portland. His background is in creative writing, but he's also a cook and a food distributor, and he currently facilitates small groups of fellow white people, working to address white supremacy on behalf of Portland's chapter of Showing Up for Racial Justice. Most relevant to this episode, however, is that he's also the founder of New Masculinities Group, a four-year-old project to engage men and people of all genders in difficult yet necessary conversations about masculinity, gender, and sexuality, work he has begun to do professionally as a men's accountability consultant. In our discussion today, Adam examines the ways cultural narratives shape our understanding of gender, often without us even being aware of it, and the dangerous ways it can impact our concept of masculinity, or expectations of what men are and how they should act. We'll look at several examples from pop culture, from The Sandlot to Star Wars, to analyze their messages about boyhood and manhood. Then we'll turn to the ways notions of masculinity intersect with social and political issues, like consent, food, and even prison abolition. These can be heavy subjects, but Adam expertly breaks them down in ways that are clear, approachable, and encouraging. While we'll acknowledge a variety of dangerous stereotypes, this is not a show about criticizing men, but rather a much more positive message, as Adam invites us to ask, who would we be if there was no one telling us who to be? And while we'll focus on the ways men confront that question, it's also a question all of us, whether we are men or another gender, can learn to ask ourselves. This is a long episode, edited down from an even longer conversation, but I wanted to include as much of it as I could. At the end of the show and in the description for this episode, there will be information how you can continue to educate yourself on these issues or even get involved in new masculinities yourself. We've got a lot to talk about, so with all that said, let's get started. The way that I generally describe it is that it is um, intended to um, get men and uh, folks of all genders uh, engaged in critical conversations around um, gender, masculinity, and sexuality. Um, and importantly for me, uh, to mention that it is ideally with a intersectional feminist lens, it is, I would say an amalgamation of different things. Uh, it can be 
a reading group, a uh, discussion group, um, a sort of like support group from time to time. And, and yeah, it's really, it has a lot of different goals. Uh, and some of them are different than, than they were when they started. But the basic idea is that combating patriarchy is a men's issue just as much, uh, if not more, than it is uh, for other folks. And um, I want to create a space to help men both liberate themselves from patriarchal conditioning and also learn about the ways that we have been um, conditioned to harm others. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's it in a in in a in a nutshell. Uh, I would say more um, specifically, it is small group meetings based here in Portland, Oregon. Though we've been doing uh, meetings remotely uh, since the pandemic hit, and you know the groups can range anywhere between four and sixteen people. Uh, so it's not the biggest thing, um, but it is something that we do uh, these days twice a month, uh, every month, and yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And and what motivated you to want to start this? So um, I, like many people, was radicalized um, in numerous ways after the 2016 election. Um, I think I had always been someone who had a lot of thoughts uh, about how the world should be. And I think that I had done not nearly enough of engaging in making that world possible. Um, And I think after the uh, election of Donald Trump, um, I, like many other people in my community, saw this immediate need to address what we saw as a lot of pressing issues. Uh, And for me, uh, I had this sort of idea that, like, a lot of people felt like they were arguing about what was correct, what was uh, the problem, what was, um, who was to blame, And I sort of landed on this idea that we all just needed to individually be focusing on um, those areas that we were, each of us, uh, I guess, most qualified for. And I had been reading uh, feminist uh, writing, and I had had some minor successes at engaging with other men about uh, things that many men are very sensitive about engaging with. And um, I saw that that was a need that I could fill, uh, was to start hosting uh, deliberate conversations um, around sexuality and consent, around combating toxic masculinities, around expanding uh, the ideas of what masculinity could be, about how to actually enact uh, accountability when called out, rather than sort of, you know, hiding from hiding from having um, our behaviors held to account. So I, I just saw that there was a lot to do, and it just seemed like, okay, one way to start is to just get in a room with men that I know who are even willing to start having these conversations and have guided conversations by reading books, talking about them, talking about what was going on in our lives, and um, make space for, for the sort of things that men don't really make space for in their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really cool. And what writers or thinkers um, have you been looking at in your groups? Or which ones have been maybe most influential for you? So, um, let's see. There's there's a couple ways to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I think that um, we started 
with the book uh, Men Explain Things to Me by uh, Rebecca Solnit, mm-hmm. um, which has you know become quite famous. Um, she didn't coin the term, but because of the book, the, the uh, term mansplaining was coined. But that book was a major one, and it's the one that we started with because I think more so than a lot of other authors I've seen, uh, her writings are really capable of showing how individual behaviors on a mass scale make up a culture and how um, like policy on a broad scale affects our individual lives and sort of shows that intersection really well, where I think a lot of people either get hung up on only the interpersonal or only the policy-based. Um, so that was where we started. Um, I would say I try to include a lot of Black feminist writers, many of whom uh, we owe the concepts of intersectionality. I would say that we started with Bell Hooks, um, Audre Lorde, Angela Davis were kind of like three of the major cornerstones of, of our conversations. Bell Hooks' book, The Will to Change, is a really great starting point for um, men who sort of want to understand a little more of how they may have been shaped by t- patriarchy and, and why it's up to them to to get involved. Um, Angela Davis's book, Women, Race, and Class, is a absolutely phenomenal, uh, I guess, background understanding um, that I think really helps us understand where we are now at a time where um, a lot of the conversations in feminism are about this concept of white feminism, which is a privileged feminism whose um, needs do not include those of women of color or often non-binary folks or trans folks uh, or the working class. And so, yeah, I think women, race and class is an excellent starter for anyone who sort of wants to understand, I guess, like the, the, the history of uh, that, that brought us to where we are now. And I know before this conversation, when we were talking about, like, what should this conversation be about? We were talking about narratives and you were talking about how you like to explore narratives and you have certain ideas about how cultural narratives form and are transmitted through cultural products or behaviors and art and things that artists even kind of subconsciously ingrain into the things they create without even realizing it. Do you want to talk about what some of those tropes are that you think about when you think about patriarchal tropes in cultural narratives? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it's, for me, it's really important to recognize that, um, we are constantly being assaulted with these endless narratives about, uh, who we are, who we ought to be, how we ought to live. Um, and often it's done in such a way that we are also meant to, um, sort of ignore the fact that that is a form of conditioning. I think there is a lot of messaging and a lot of art that is presented as if it is a just a matter of fact. That's just the way it is. And to me, that's something that really interests me is um, what are the things that what are the messages we're receiving that are either hidden deliberately in this way so as to appear like, no, this is just culture. And what are the ways that um, we are getting messaging from authors, writers, performers who don't even realize that that is embedded in the in the work that they do. I think like often we're taught that um, certain messages in art exist either beyond politics uh, or are apolitical or that the author's intent doesn't really matter. 
And uh, for me, I'm not really so much concerned with the author's intent as I am with um, the author's subconscious biases, um, which will always find their way into their work. <laughs> I have this funny example that I think is maybe a way to, to talk about like this fairly innocuous ways that these things get formed. I was thinking, as I've been trying to think about like what, what example should I give? I've been thinking about the movie The Sandlot, which uh, famously has the scene where the character Squints uh, pretends to be drowning uh, in order to trick uh, his romantic interest into kissing him. And the thing that I keep thinking about is that the fiction of that movie rewards him. She performs disgust, but afterward the movie makes it clear that she was impressed and interested and they end up married in the end. So, um, you know, there's this question of like, what is the lesson in this movie? And what I would say is that uh, the lesson that people learn from watching it is that boys and men can do anything uh, at all to get a woman's attention, even feigning death. Uh, and also further that if even if she makes it seem like she's upset, the woman actually wants that attention. And I think like the thing to know is that like the, the particular storyline isn't inconceivable. Like we can imagine people who maybe have a secret crush on one another and one, you know, makes a daring move and it works out like that's not inconceivable. The point is that like this movie has become a major classic in the American cultural psyche. And that, you know, scene is famous. And now, you know, you'll see people dressing up on Halloween as like, as Squins and Wendy as a couple's costume. It's, it's depicted as the, this romantic thing. When for me, what I think about is like, this is a this is a scene in which we're taught that like, you can sexually assault women as long as it's cute and as long as you're a boy. And I guess like to those who maybe are listening to this and thinking like, well, this is silly. Uh, you know, boys will be boys. That's kind of the whole point of the movie. Um, what I would say is like, that's exactly what makes this so, I guess, effective and also dangerous because we imagine that sort of innocent play has no effect on us and that stories have no effect on us. When I would say that like a lot of our models for who to be come from the characters we see in movies and, and things that we like. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's just one example. Mm -hmm. um, I've always thought that scene was just weird. Like I've never understood why people found it charming. I think, I mean, I, I understand, I, I, definitely hear you. I understand um, why people, gravitated toward it, I guess, because they just see it as sort of comedic or sort of youthful innocence or something. But uh, I guess I've always felt like, you know, it's definitely not consensual. Right. And I think I think that's that is the important <laughs> yeah. thing, first of all, um, mm -hmm. is that this is just like the first in many stories uh, that we see in, you know, all sorts of popular fiction where something is so clearly the initial act is so clearly not consensual and yet retroactively we are shown that um it worked right it worked in air quotes this idea of like uh but it was the right move because ultimately she was impressed and i think like we are inundated by um things like that i also think it works on like a deeper level one one bit of pop culture i always think about is um in Star Wars, specifically the, the whole situation around um, the presentation of Leia and her slave outfit. So there's this whole thing where, like, in that movie, Leia becomes taken captive and is dressed up in this revealing outfit that is, you know, intentionally objectifying. And there's so many layers here. There's the fact that Carrie Fisher, the actor, 
hated wearing it. And there are, you know, even photographs of George Lucas, you know, smiling smugly at her as in, you know, finally I am at a point in my life where I have the power to make women wear objectifying outfits, uh, which itself is grotesque. But then there's the way that it's depicted in the movie where clearly the audience is meant to be titillated. You know, the assumed male audience is meant to be titillated by Princess Leia's body but also is meant to identify with the heroic men who, uh, you know, ultimately come and, and help her escape. And so there's these ways in which pop culture allows us to sort of, like, identify with both the villain and the hero. Um, I would say that a lot of, like, a lot of what, uh, like, heterosexual uh, masculinity involves is this sort of, like, duality of being the hero who rescues while also being the villain who, who dominates. I would say that that sort of like um, strange dualism is found in a lot of, uh, of, of male, uh, like, you know, uh, hetero male normative sexuality and, and just depictions of, of what male uh, heterosexuality is. Anyway, um, which is to say that like those norms go in to inform the culture that we witness and then the culture that we witness continues to inform our um, our behaviors. And it's the cyclical thing. And I think it's especially dangerous because we are sometimes taught that art isn't dangerous, that it isn't doing these things, that it's just a story. Um, when in fact, it's, you know, constantly going through us and it's always in our minds. And it, you know, it, it sometimes sits so strongly because it elicits these strong reactions from us. Um, and it's really hard to, to escape those things um, and to escape that influence. I've been thinking about uh, where the sort of idea... Uh, I mentioned to you that I, I have this term for this kind of process. I call it fictioneering. Um, this idea that culture, uh, movies, film, books, TV, advertising uh, are embedded with all of these messaging, with all this messaging that maybe is even there subconsciously because it was created by someone who, you know, themselves is a product of the culture. And then we grow up and are inundated with uh, all of these things. And that in turn informs our own narratives that we keep passing on. It's this, it's this process of reifying and um, propagating these, these same narratives. And I think it's dangerous, again, because it feels like it's not happening. It feels like we're just hearing stories and then, you know, telling our own stories. I was thinking about um, this book uh, by this author, Gabriel Giustavici. It's called Whatever Happened to Modernism? And he talks about it's, it's kind of a work of literary critique. And there's a section where he paraphrases uh, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, and says, um, that is the secret power of novels. They look like mirrors held up to the world, but what they are is machines that secrete spurious meaning into the world and so muddy the waters of genuine understanding of the human condition. That's sort of a grim outlook, but I think that is a line that I read years ago that sort of helped me understand, like, we so often think about the stories that we read as, like, being very, just, like, inherently human, very... Um, you know, necessary to our lives. But I think there's this other element, which is that sometimes what we think is a mirror is actually a uh, very politically weighted uh, manifesto um, that is all the more effective because we don't see it as such. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes when reading things, I have this sort of personal concern about them. 
And this isn't something I'm like always thinking about when I'm reading, but sometimes I'll read something that feels kind of compelling and I'll think, but what if it's wrong? What if there is something about this that feels like an authentic representation of reality that this author is actually wrong about? And I'm absorbing it, and I think I'm absorbing something that feels kind of like truthful or helping me better understand the human condition when it's really complicating it and giving me a misconception about it under the like under the guise of being some kind of like you know quality you know, work of art or something. I'll think about like what will this do to me? Like how will my ideologies as a person change, and what if it changes it for the worse instead of for the better? Uh, yeah, I feel that way all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's interesting hearing you use the term. Um, I, I think you said wrong. Uh, that idea. Um, I guess for me, I don't know that I think of it as wrong. That you know, I've used this word already multiple times. The word I think about is dangerous, and what mm-hmm. I mean by that specifically is harmful to um, already marginalized or oppressed peoples. I think that is sort of what comes up to me mm-hmm. when I'm reading art that feels off is, is this going to make me more compassionate as a human being or does this contain and is this normalizing ideas about human beings who are already endangered by, by the world as it is? Um, you know, so like, taking transphobia in fiction really seriously, for example, because if you read a book that depicts um, a trans person in a belittling, harmful, or um, inconsiderate way, another person reading that might think, well, this is the reality of those people because I don't I don't have too many trans folks in my life. Um, I, I think about that with the way that a lot of the ways that men write about women are really bad and, mm-hmm. and perpetuate these ideas. You know, it's if a, if a man is writing fiction with women characters, um, there's a good chance that he is doing it from a very biased perspective. Same with white authors writing uh, characters of color. Um, and I think one of the things that is so interesting is that often we don't even realize that these things are bad until we have someone from a marginalized group who has to like make it clear, like, no, please don't write about us that way. And yeah, I, I think um, for me there, cause you know, inevitably I think we're, we're driving toward this question of like, okay, so what do you do with art that is beloved and um, in many ways valuable, right? Like can something be both valuable and beautiful and also dangerous? And what I would say is, yeah, my approach to these things, um, you know, like I think that, again, Star Wars is a series of movies. The classics, anyway, are a series of movies that uh, engage in some very strange uh, masculinity stuff. I wouldn't stop my my children if I had them from watching it. I would probably just say, please remember that this is both a cultural touchstone and a work of art. And it's also a fantasy that some dudes came up with, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I I think, I think for me, like, we ought to have some humility around art, um, that ultimate, ultimately, like, this is some stuff that some people did with their hands. And a lot of them were privileged and a lot of them were lacking in perspective when they did it. Um, and that those, those blind spots are glaringly there once you have the eyes to see them, um, Mm -hmm. And, and so often it, it, it ends up being uh, marginalized folks who have to tell us, like, no, this has been bad all along. 
you just didn't have the eyes to see it uh, before. Mm-hmm. I know this episode is probably going to be a little bit of a longer one. Do you have time for a few more questions? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I want to make sure that in addition to talking about, you know, things that happen on a personal level, um, we also talked about things that happen on an interpersonal level and also a more systemic or political level. So maybe just looking at those two other dimensions, and you can maybe decide which one you want to focus on more or look at the two of them equally, um, whatever you feel like you think is most important to discuss here. Um, but how does changing a person's understanding of patriarchy as they, as they change that and relearn that for themselves, relearn their own masculinity, how should that change the way they act then toward other people? And what does that look like on a policy level? How does that actually change the ways we structure um, society? How does that change the way we create laws or enact justice um, on a larger scale? Yeah, I appreciate uh, I appreciate that question, and I think I can um, maybe address it uh, both of those, both the interpersonal and the uh, policy level, um, in sort of one continuous thread. Um, what I would say is that a big concern of mine is building a healthier culture of consent. Some people would argue that we need to move beyond consent because consent is the uh, permission to do something to someone. Uh, and what we really ought to be talking about is language about um, engaging in activities together with others um, alongside, not uh, people doing things to each other. I think um, for me, one thing that I would say is like I'd really love for men to learn not just about respecting, uh, put, doing a performance of respecting comfort, not just saying things like we can, we can move at whatever speed you want, not just saying things like, can I do this? Is this okay? But actually listening to what their partners want, um, not just asking things as a leading question, hoping for an answer, but actually providing space to hear the answers from people that we might not want to hear, whether that's, um, I'm attracted to you, would you like to go out? And actually hearing if the answer is no and making space for that and respecting it too. Or whether that's in an intimate situation, would you like to, um, you know, <laughs> are you in the mood to fuck tonight? And having, uh, having space for a no, um, really listening to that. Um, and also, you know, learning to understand our own desires. I've talked to men recently about this idea about uh, shame and the sort of like uh, drive to perform uh, as if uh, perform intimately, as if it were always a competition, as if there were always someone else waiting in the wings to replace us. Um, but I think like I would advise men to really think about what we want. There's this assumption that, we're always ready to go. We always are in the mood for intimacy and sex, that, um, that those are our constant, ever-present desires. And that's definitely a big cultural narrative. But I think, like, we need to take stock of, like, what are the things that we really like? What are our comfort levels? What are our boundaries? So I, I think that's a really big thing for me, is moving beyond this idea that consent is um, 
a box that you check and that it is a dialogue, a conversation, an active thing of mutual respect with people like wanting to know things about each other. And the second part being um, really listening to uh, ourselves and making it clear that that we know what we want and that we're taking care of what we want and that we know how to convey that to other people. Because I think learning to communicate even our own desires is a really important skill. And I also just want to point uh, back to, because we were talking about pop culture earlier, I don't think there are maybe any scenes uh, in any pop culture that depict the types of conversations that could actually happen before um, initiating sex. Um, In movies, people never ask, hey, when was the last time you got tested? What are your comfort zones? Uh, Do you want to do this? Um, Almost all pieces of fiction sort of depict uh, intimacy as this thing that just spontaneously happens without conversation. And I want to make room for intimacy between people who know each other well enough that they don't need to like spell everything out. Um, But I really, 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 really want to start seeing cultural examples of communication being sexy and being erotic and being uh, the right move. Um, So that's just something I want to say. As for uh, a more political angle to this, um, something that I feel really strongly about these days is approaching feminism from an abolitionist standpoint. That's something that uh, for those who um, are maybe not initiated, there has been a lot of wonderful writing about it this summer, um, in part because of uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, I would advise people to check out uh, Angela Davis's writings and speeches about abolition feminism. The general idea is that Our system is punitive in nature, and it does not actually go anywhere toward um, solving crime or bringing justice to anyone, Um, that we are more concerned with punishments and um, silencing and erasing people than we are with creating safe, uh, safe communities and rehabilitated human beings. I think this is something that comes up a lot around conversations about sexual assault. And there is often this sort of dichotomy between, on one hand, we have situations where most sexual assaults will go unpunished. Uh, There will be no uh, repercussions, no justice uh, for the survivors. Uh, And yet, on the other hand, you know, the thing that we are supposed to think of as justice, which we are, you know, on the rare times that it happens, uh, that we're sort of uh, expected to cheer on, is incarceration in the prison system. And, you know, many of us know about this through uh, cruel jokes, that prisons are incredibly violent, uh, horrendous places where sexual assault occurs frequently, and violence and brutality occurs frequently. And I think there's a growing consensus that... um, putting people into prisons is not uh, in any way a reasonable reasonable, um, outcome for people who have, even people who have harmed others. And I think many people are really aching for a solution that will both keep us safe and also provide justice and accountability and possibilities for growth for for human beings uh, who have harmed others. And I think 
something that uh, is so important to talk about here is that um, many people, part of the reason that they won't seek, uh, you know, uh, legal repercussions, not not to mention the fact that uh, often the justice system really cruelly treats and mistreats uh, survivors of assault, but also that many of the people who commit harm are family members and friends uh, who they don't want to see going to prison. And I think what we need to be talking about is that we live in a society with almost no middle ground. There is no justice outside of, there's no, I would say, there's no justice inside the prison system, and there's no justice outside of the prison system either, uh, because we lack the social community infrastructure to actually help people grow and heal and be held accountable. And I want to make it clear that by saying I don't think someone should go to prison, I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences. I would say that that's the system we have now, is that most of the time across the board, there are no consequences for for people who harm others. Um, What I'm saying is that we need to start building robust systems of consequences, um, accountability, but also healing and growth uh, for, for those who harm others. We all seem to recognize that it is true that hurt people hurt people. We just don't really have a system in place to to act on that on that understanding and that knowledge. And so part of that, you know, is part of a broader framework of we need to feed people, we need to clothe people, we need mental health assistance for people who are struggling. Um, we need people to feel like they can um, confide in uh, parental or authority figures in their lives and feel like they're heard after they've been hurt um, or feel like they can be treated and helped before they can hurt. Um, so I, I just think um, part of thinking about this world without patriarchy and without um patriarchal violence and without sexual assault is thinking about a world where we take care of people um, immediately after they've been harmed and also hopefully before they can harm either for the first time or harm again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are certain crimes that men are just so much more predisposed to enacting um, than women or people of under other gender identities would be. And it does beg the question, of course, like, are men just naturally more violent? Is there something innate about masculinity that lends itself to being more likely to identify a person as, you know, someone who will sexually assault someone? Like, I like to think that those things are not innate masculine things, but things that somehow in our construction of what these gender identities are, like a large contingent of them, are recognizing that as a viable option. Or something that is okay. And, yeah. and and to what degree, you know, are we we creating a society that does tell men, okay, don't do this, but actually it is kind of okay to do that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think I think that last point is really interesting. Um, because when I think about um, you know, when when we hear about allegations against um, you know, a celebrity or against another powerful person there's often this time of this, this at least performance from some people of shock, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't believe it. And yet we've all seen what men are taught to be. We've mm-hmm. seen war movies. We've played violent video games. We've read all the books and uh, seen the advertising where we're supposed to be 
fighting and strong and engaging in dominant acts uh, against each other and against um, weaker, uh, you know, like less physically strong people. And then we're surprised when men hurt people. And what I'm what I'm saying is, how could that be surprising? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And we need to we need to be honest with ourselves. Like we're teaching men to hurt others, um, and we're teaching men to hurt themselves, uh, to shut themselves out from full range of emotions. And we need to, first of all stop doing that, and second of all, we need to be proactive about. Um, providing healthier outlets and better options for for what kind of people we can be. Um, so yeah, sometimes it feels like society is simultaneously like encouraging these really like the strong, violent male stereotype, and they're simultaneously terrified of those men. Mm-hmm. It's like you need to be this way, but then if we find out you really are, gotta put him in jail, gotta get him out of here. Yeah, and I would say also that um, in a lot of ways, the ways that we depict men as either valiant and heroic uh, or uh, harmful and problematic, dangerous predators Mm -hmm. often uh, exist along um, differences of race and class. We love to depict white men as, you know, sometimes struggling and complicated, but still heroic. And men of color, particularly black men, uh, those um, expressions of masculinity are appreciated only when it makes people money, uh, as in with sports, uh, but otherwise um, is often depicted as aggressive and dangerous and violent and, and not okay. Um, and I would say that at this moment, I hope that most people are sort of waking up to all of the ways in which the things that are good and the things that are bad are so often racially charged. Um, and also just, you know, if we're even just looking at uh, rates of who winds up in prison uh, for certain behaviors, um, mm-hmm. it's going to be far less white people uh, than, than men of color. And so, yeah, but I, I think I think there is this element of simultaneously encouraging dangerous, hurtful behaviors and also punishing it. And I think that creates a really um, dangerous and difficult uh, place to be mentally as, as a, as a man. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, like when I think about that, it's no wonder men can be so dangerous because there's just so many different, uh, I guess, powerful narratives uh, telling us to, who to be and, and not nearly enough resources or not nearly enough um, uh, ways to sort of uh, turn away from, from from those uh, that behavior, mm-hmm. I'll also say that I mean, like thinking about this now, it reminds me of the way that, like, also our culture kind of um, pushes us simultaneously towards um, impossible beauty standards and also endless consumption of um, unhealthy foods, and that is by design because um, you know the people who own hospitals and the people who own junk food companies. Uh, want us in a constant cycle of consumption and <laughs> binging and purging. And so that part of me makes, you know, is wondering, like, who is benefiting off the fact that men are simultaneously asked to be um, perfectly violent, uh, aggressive, dominant people, but also being uh, civil, buttoned up, um, collected, strong uh, leaders of society. 
I mean, Bell Hooks in uh, The Will to Change mentions the idea that, of course, it makes sense that so many of these uh, masculine narratives are encouraged to sort of take away our critical thinking and encourage us to be um, strong-bodied figures who follow orders well, uh, because that makes for great soldiers and great members of an industrial workforce. So I, I think um, one thing that I would always encourage people to think about is asking these questions of um, who benefits from these stories that we tell ourselves? Because so often it's clearly not us. You know, like mm-hmm. if someone is telling us it's weak to share your feelings, it's weak to um, lean on others for support. It's strong to exist only on your own. Um it's so clear that we as individuals are not benefiting from those things. And so I would always ask people, if something isn't working for you, start thinking about why um, and, and start really challenging that. Um, I, I think like another, just another thing that comes to mind is just um, this idea that certain behaviors aren't natural say, a man uh, being more effeminate or um, just anything like that, anything that defies our our sort of binary notions of of gender, it is strange that the argument is it's not natural when so clearly it is. Um, You know, like if someone just wants to be who they are and we tell them that's not how it's supposed to be, that's not like nature... It's so strange because clearly, like, these limitations are the most constructed things that we have. Mm-hmm. Like, we are telling each other these are the rules, and yet paradoxically saying these are the rules because this is what is natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that's all a lie. Throw it all out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, be the person that you want to be as long as it doesn't, you know, hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for people who want to... I've really enjoyed this conversation, by the way. Thank you so much again for agreeing to do this. But for people who are looking to deal with these questions more, ask more of these questions, maybe get involved with new masculinities themselves, how can they do that? Let's see. I mean, there's, there's a couple ways. Uh, I would encourage um, folks to... Uh, well, first of all, folks are welcome to reach out. I don't have a website. It's it's a uh, it's pretty small potatoes. Uh, you can find New Masculinities Group on Facebook if you want. I have a page there, and yeah, I mean, if you're interested in starting up groups like this, I would love to talk about it. Um, I think the the biggest thing I would say is I don't know that I really want to start up chapters. I'd rather just help others uh, start building communities where they are. I'd also just love for people to start reading more, sharing more, having these conversations with friends. Uh, one of the best things that I could say to start doing this is start showing your coworkers, start showing other uh, male and masculine people in your lives uh, that you can talk about your feelings and um, share funny or embarrassing stories where you don't have to make yourself seem like, you know, the strong person. Start encouraging other people to be who they want to be and really step in if you catch others being uh, policing of gender roles. I think that is a really big thing. When you hear others uh, being shamed, that is a really important time to step in and say, hey, um, 
no, we're going to support people for being who they are and we're going to support people for doing the right thing. Um, so that's like, honestly, that's the best thing that I can imagine coming out of this is more people feeling inspired to do this work on themselves, to educate themselves and to start, um, yeah, leading by example, uh, for others. That was Adam Siegel, men's accountability consultant and the founder of New Masculinities Group. You can follow New Masculinities Group on Facebook, and he also told me you could reach out to him directly if you like at adamjacobsiegel at gmail.com. Adam has provided a list of resources for anyone who would like to continue to explore the topics we've just discussed. They're in the episode description. He would also encourage anyone listening to contact him with questions, concerns, or advice on how to start their own New Masculinity Style Group in their community. The Plot is a production from me, Sean Douglas, and the credits theme music is by Tan Chong Yu. If you liked this show, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you know anyone else you think might like this show, please also consider recommending it or sharing it online where more people can discover it. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore Sean Douglas underscore and this show at The Plot Podcast. That's all for today. Thanks again to Adam, and thank you for listening.